Welcome to the AVA Journal Legal Rebels podcast, where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future. Large language models like ChatGPT are all the rage these days. Lots of commentators, legal professionals, lawyers, and media outlets like this podcast have spent tons of time examining this game-changing technology and how it could radically change the legal industry. This isn't the first time a promising piece of legal technology has upended the legal industry, though. When technology-assisted review first started gaining traction in electronic discovery in the 2010s, many of the same superlatives assigned as ChatGPT were used to describe this groundbreaking new process that purported to review documents faster and more accurately than humans. Lawyers would get hours and hours of time back, and clients would save tons of money. Simply put, TAR, or predictive coding as it was also known, was a game changer. But then a funny thing happened. Lawyers were reluctant to fully embrace it, citing concerns with the technology or the possibility a court might punish them for using a new tool that hadn't been widely accepted within the legal industry. Even today, many lawyers and firms still rely on traditional methods of conducting electronic discovery, armies of contract attorneys sifting through documents one at a time. In that vein, large language models have already been more wholeheartedly embraced by lawyers and legal professionals than TAR. However, there have also been a lot of hiccups and problems with the, with the tech. Between false case citations and made-up information, it's clear that this tech still has a way to go. My name is Victor Lee, and I'm Assistant Managing Editor of the ABA Journal. Joining me on today's episode of the ABA Journal Legal Rebels podcast is John Tredenick. John is currently CEO at Merlin Search Technologies. Prior to that, he was a litigator and partner at Holland & Hart. While serving as CTO of the firm, he spun off the eDiscovery Group into a separate business in 2000, which he named Catalyst. In 2019, he sold Catalyst to OpenText. John is here to talk about what it was like when TAR first came out, how it compares to the reception ChatGPT got, and how large language models are affecting keyword searches and the realm of eDiscovery. Welcome to the show, John. Well, thanks, Victor. This should be a lot of fun, and I'm looking forward to having a chance to uh, renew old ties and talk with you a bit about these fascinating subjects. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm looking forward to it as well. I mean, I've, um, yeah, like, like you said, it's been a while since we've talked. I think I think I first met you back when I still worked at uh, Law Technology News, so so it's definitely been a while. You did indeed, and it's yeah. been a while, but uh, we're getting better, not just older. <laughs> well, I tell my knees that all the time, and that doesn't seem to help. <laughs> so uh, I gave the quick elevator spiel about uh, yourself and your background, but can you talk a little bit about more about you know what made you decide to become a lawyer and what drew you to electronic discovery? Well, I spent the first twenty years of my career as a trial lawyer. And I tell people who ask me what I did, I'd say I was a dog bite lawyer. Sometimes <laughs> I'd represent the dog and sometimes whoever the dog bit. Uh, but the truth was I was a commercial lawyer uh, handling cases largely for big companies at uh, Holland & Hart, largest law firm in the Rockies. In the late 80s, and I go back, I became convinced that there had to be things that a computer could do to make a trial lawyer's life better or easier. And I got the bug and started digging in. Uh, Actually, for the ABA, I wrote or edited and put together two of their best-selling books, Winning with Computers, Trial Practice in the 21st Century. Two volumes, and these came out in 91 and 92. So you can imagine the kind of topics, uh, or I could pull up the the old book cover of a what was then a high-tech laptop that we would all laugh at. (laughs) But I was convinced and began working within the firm 
to develop technology that could help connect our 10 offices together. In those days, we called it an intranet, and we used uh, some of the basic web technology uh, to connect us. Later, we started connecting with other firms in the late 90s. Uh, Some called that an extranet. Today, we'd call it the internet. And we began building systems where people from different firms could work together in a joint defense arrangement, for example, for a major case. As we built that technology, I began to see what, uh, for many, was an obvious vision that the world was going to change uh, around the internet, around databases, around big iron systems, if you will, that could be uh, hosted in the cloud securely and suddenly accessible to people from different organizations and different parts of the world. At the time, we had people who saw that vision as well coming to us to use our technology, even in uh, matters where we weren't lawyering. And that struck me as pretty crazy, but I was convinced that we were just at the beginning of this digital revolution, and I talked the firm into letting me spin out this business. One of the first uh, e-discovery search technology companies that, yes, we ultimately named Catalyst. And the irony was, at the time, I was a corner office law partner, doing things corner office law partners do, and knew nothing about being a tech entrepreneur. But I thought, let me add it, we'll find a way to do it. And we did. We built Catalyst to 160 people with five data centers around the world, with some of the largest corporate clients, the number one, frankly, that existed. And we were honored to serve many large law firms. Gotcha. So uh, for people who might not understand the e-discovery process, and I'm not saying I do, but you know, I've been around enough people like you, so I, I think I can get by. Could you just describe it real quickly? Like how, how has it evolved over the years and what does it look like now? Well, Long before documents were digital, uh, the Supreme Court in the United States and and our bars took the view that uh, in civil litigation, and arguably in criminal, but in civil litigation, uh, no party should be surprised by the other side's documents. And so back in the 30s and 40s, we put uh, out rules of civil procedure that gave the parties the right to ask the other side to produce documents, and vice versa. And in the days of paper, most cases were small, and this wasn't a big thing, but as photocopiers became more effective, the volumes increased, and we began to talk about the proverbial warehouse in New Jersey, where you had to go during July or August, and I'm not picking on New Jersey intentionally, but that's where they seem to be, and you had to sit there in 100 plus degree heat pawing through paper, and they called that discovery. And as the century turned, as we moved into the 2000s, more and more of that content became digital, and people felt they needed a name for the exchange of digital information, primarily emails, office documents, but certainly it goes well beyond. And so we started talking about electronic discovery or e-discovery where the parties could make requests and, uh, and the transfer now became digital. And that was the beginning of e-discovery. 
Gotcha. Yeah, as much fun as sitting in a warehouse in in the, in the dead of summer at New Jersey sounds. Uh, I I can see why a lot of people it might not be their cup of tea. So obviously when TAR came out, I mean, what did you think when you first heard it? Was it just when you first heard of it? Was it just like, oh my god, this is this is incredible, or were you just kind of like, hmm, I I got to take a look at this to see if this is really what it's cracked up to be? Well, let's start and talk about the impetus for TAR because I think you go 2000 to 2010 as the digital revolution evolved. So back when when cases involved maybe 30,000 documents, people could manage them on their laptops. They could review them without too much of a burden. And so nobody really thought about better ways to find or review documents. They just assumed we plow through them all in date order or Bates number order, and that was that. Fast forward not that many years when those cases went from 30,000 documents to 30 million documents, or at least millions of documents. And suddenly, that old tried-and-true method, heck, in the early days, I had partners that would get a CD and say, print it out so I can look at it. (laughs) And that method maybe works okay with a CD but not when you're talking millions of documents. And so uh, we started addressing the problem by hiring cheaper reviewers, frankly. In the earliest of days, I can remember when even partners were reviewing documents for a big uh, merger that might have antitrust implications. And the word went out, hey, senior lawyers, you can get all your billable requirements done Just sit and review these documents. We need bodies. Uh, From there, we moved to offshoring where folks in other countries, India is a good example, Philippines, had uh, people that were highly educated, spoke English well, and would do those reviews at a fraction of what a lawyer cost. Uh, Then in about 2008, we had the real collapse of the economy, and suddenly there were a lot of lawyers in the U.S., willing to do these reviews. I mean, smart, qualified, willing to do them for 30 or 20, 30, $40 an hour. And so the whole notion was we would just get cheaper reviewers to handle the process. By 2010, that became clear that it wasn't gonna be the answer here and certainly expensive for our clients with very little that they, they could see they got out of the process. That's when some of the early pioneers began to turn to the scientists and methods they had developed to find and organize documents in other fields. And they began to wonder if those processes, uh, which became known as predictive coding or TAR, but in the science world was relevance feedback, a process whereby you interacted with a computer and it watched as you mark documents positively or negatively, thumbs up or thumbs down, and would build models around your actions and use that to predict what other documents you might want to see. For most of us who are not scientists, uh, the simple way to say is that it was about 2005 when Pandora came out with one of the first internet radios. You gave it a song you liked, it played you more songs, You said thumbs up or thumbs down. It actually took that signal, modified its machine learning model, and just got better and better 
at predicting which documents, excuse me, which music you wanted to see. We essentially took that same process over to documents with TAR, and the notion was that the TAR engine, if it was good, wouldn't play music you want to hear, but would bring you documents you were looking for. And all the research showed that it worked. It was a better way to search and find documents for that same human-based review. So where would you say the legal industry is now when it comes to tar adoption? Like, is it still kind of you know, hit or miss? Like still, like some people use, some people don't? Or is it becoming more acceptable uh, you know, as, as people become more familiar with the technology? Well, particularly in the fields with cases involving large documents, I think it's being used more and more. I think the hard part came at the beginning. The first round of TAR, which I named TAR 1.0, was a complex and limited process that frankly was limited by the processors, the computers, and the capabilities we had in the early 2010s. And at the time, there was the feeling that you needed TAR experts around you, scientists, statistical experts, and you had a complex process that worked many times, but not every time. We came along at Catalyst, along with uh, two great scientists, Maura Grossman, Gordon Cormack, and, uh, and independently developed new algorithms that were much faster and would support a continuous learning process that frankly was much simpler. Think of a TAR where you just go in and start reviewing documents and it does its magic, presenting them more effectively for you. Frankly, uh, when I formed Merlin, we've developed a new algorithm that could analyze a million documents in 100 milliseconds. Instant feedback and instantly reorganizing documents. So TAR, Uh, has improved and more people are using it and the courts are approving it. But to be sure, lawyers are not risk takers by nature. They're certainly nervous. We're always, uh, we say, looking through the rear view mirror to drive. We're looking for precedent. And it's taken some years to establish the precedent. It's being used. But the thing to understand is TAR was another, an advance on search. another way to find documents but it wasn't necessarily eliminating the problem uh, uh, around the cost of humans to do that review and analysis. It was only part of the puzzle. Gotcha. So we'll talk more about search when we get back from this uh, ad break. Uh, So let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. Democracy Decoded, a podcast by Campaign Legal Center, examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. Listen at democracydecoded.org to their new season, which takes a deep dive into democracy at the state and local level by highlighting different ways to ensure that every voter's voice is heard. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C. And get $500 off with code HAPPY24. And we're back. 
So let's talk about ChatGPT and other large language models. And I mean, for the sake of this conversation, I'll just I'll just use ChatGPT as a shorthand for all of the all of the various models that are out there. Um, or GPT, frankly. Oh yeah, yeah, that's G- the model. G- G- that's probably better. Yeah. So how did you first find out about it, and what did you think when you first heard of it? Well, I like to ask folks when I'm giving talks if they remember where they were on November 30 of 2022, <laughs> and I. Harken back to my days, I'm older, uh, remembering where I was when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon or JFK was shot or the like, uh, or 9-11, frankly, we all have a memory. Probably we, we don't of November 30th, but it might be as important in some ways or certainly uh, at the top level of importance. That's when GPT, chat GPT was released for public trial. Like others, this was out of the blue, like many others. It was out of the blue. It was totally unexpected, and it's rare in life when any innovation with so much promise just pops onto the horizon out of the blue. But that's what happened. And many of us started looking hard at it and over a period of months began to realize the transformational power of these large language models of which GPT was certainly the leader uh, and is the leader right now. But then the question became, how do we put this fire to use? Fire's been discovered. We know it has power. We know it'll burn our fingers if we uh, try to touch it. But everything's about how can we put this to use how will it change the ways we've done things in the digital age? What kind of advantages, savings, and what might happen to my job? Yeah, I think everyone, everyone's wondering, but wondering that last one especially. <laughs> so let me ask, I mean, were you, were you surprised that like these, I mean, I'm not saying everyone wholeheartedly embraced it. Obviously, some people, you know, were, I mean, have, there obviously have been lots of skepticism about it. And whatnot, but I mean, were you surprised at the overall reception to it? Like this idea of, like, oh my God, this is this is this is something that that could really change change the way you know we do things, and 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 it could really help. Or did you expect more based on your experience with with, with Tara? Kind of like, okay, hold on a second, let's let's not get too excited about this, and let's see where this kind of goes. Like a little bit more caution. Well, let's break that into two. Was I surprised? I was part of of the gobsmacked generation. I was part of being blown away by these capabilities. Even if it's just having GPT create a poem on something as uh, non-poetic like as the Sedona principles, if you will, or, uh, and then do it in pirate speak. Uh, (laughs) This is, um, gobsmacked is the only word I can think of for this. This is like a typhoon hitting you. And uh, for many of us, it was like opening Pandora's box. Uh, what? How is this going to change everything? How can we put it to work? And without a doubt, Pandora's box has good and bad things, at least in the allegory that we know. Right. And so it's not terribly surprising that people, some would focus on the potential negatives, of which they're very real, very real issues. And that's true with all technology. It was true with the internet. It was great. I remember Burgess Allison of the ABA talking, writing one of the early books and talking about this thing called spam and how 
we'd all agree never to spam. Uh, <laughs> naive, to say the least. So I like to say that you can tell, you can predict the power of an innovation by the tenor and tone of those who are rising up against it. Hmm. And so uh, I think the power of GPT also leads to the power of those worried about it. And even people saying, stop the research, I wanna get off this train. So I'm not surprised. And lawyers, again, are cautious by nature. That's a core part of our business. And for them to say, hold on, wait a minute, let's make sure we've got regs in place, Let's make sure that we're protecting privacy, client data, confidentiality. That's not surprise, surprising to me. But know that when uh, back in the early 1900s, when they were stringing phone lines in New York City, the bar jumped out right on top of it and said, we can't have lawyers talking on telephones. <laughs> it could be a breach of confidentiality. Attorney-client privilege could be waived. <laughs> Uh, and they didn't say it, but we think the clients ought to walk on down to our office. You know, it's been that way with cell phones, the internet, email, and I'm not surprised to hear it with something as powerful as GPT. So can you talk to me a little bit about Merlin? Like, what does it do? Like, just explain it to me. Um, just like, like what, what is it that, that uh, your company does? But then also, how are you integrating GPT into, 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 into what you do? You bet. When I sold Catalyst in 2019, I did a little soul searching and decided I wasn't ready to retire. And that the next 10 years, I thought and think, were going to be more exciting than the last 10. And I didn't want to be sitting on a front porch rocker as all that unfolded. I had the good fortune to be able to hire a large part of my development team, a crew of about 18 over in India that OpenText did not want to continue with and that's their business. I also had the chance to work with a person I think is the top scientist in our field, or in that very small list of scientists, named William Weber, based out of Melbourne, Australia. So here I am forming a new company with people spread all over the world, which uh, was fun and exciting to me. But I said, we're not gonna just form another e-discovery company. I want to take search and the discovery process going beyond e-discovery, all discovery documents. I want to take it to a whole new level. I want to take a shot at really changing the game. And so we set out with a, three things in mind. One, a chance to use all new technology. We had sold our code to OpenText. I would never try to use that code, and it was older code. All this new technology was here. We started from scratch with it for faster, more powerful, more flexible, more functions. Two, we were gonna build in the cloud for the cloud and to use the cloud the way it was meant to. And that meant we built every site in its own private secure environment, single tenant. And that also meant we can charge by the hour for hosting, not by the month. And these sites are rarely used, more than a percentage of the month. Think about paying one hourly rate when you're using it and a 70% rate when you're not. This was part of the cloud. And then, most important, I said, we're gonna take AI to a whole new level. We're gonna run as fast 
and far with it as we can and see if we can really improve the entirety of the discovery process. So as I mentioned earlier, TAR is about search, finding information. And up to now, the great bulk of discovery technology has been about improving search. So at Catalyst, we built an algorithm that could analyze a million documents in eight to 10 minutes. With Dr. Weber, we developed one that can do 10 million in 100 milliseconds. And it changes how we search. We can stop using the old keyword search. But that was only part of it. Suddenly, GPT made an appearance just in the last six months. And this didn't come immediately, but as we dug in, we realized that the second half of the discovery process could now be aided by this powerful machine learning large language model. So think of discovery up till then as being focused on search, finding your candidates, much like a Google search. It brings you back a result set. Maybe you're looking for restaurants, but once the results are there, you're on your own. You gotta paw through the results. You have to analyze what you've got. You've gotta decide whether it's the restaurant you wanna go to and is it close enough and this and that. And that's true with documents. Imagine a world where once you've located the documents, this other huge, brilliant LLM algorithm could analyze them for you, that you could literally ask a question. What's going on with this topic? And we found the documents through one half of the process and the LLM gives you an answer, tells you. So I call it moving from search hits to discovery answers. And GPT and these other LLMs have the power to do that, to summarize documents, to analyze them, to synthesize the information. And I think there are no limits to what it can do, although I'll be the first to say, this is the diaper phase. We're birthing this industry. I know where it's going. Uh, it's going to replace first pass reviewers because this engine can do this. That's a $10 billion industry. And it's not there'll be no reviewers, but it'll replace 90% of them and you'll have a small team. So think about that. And then let's back up. We went to law school. Rule one says our mission is to provide speedy and just resolution of disputes, not to make all the money we can off them. With this new technology, we have a chance to really push that forward and let lawyers do what they went to law school to do. Think, strategize, provide counsel, judgment, guidance. Not sit there and go through documents and say, well, is this relevant or not? So that's the power of the future, a discovery process that now uses technology to find the documents and technology to help you understand them, to analyze, to answer questions, and do it in seconds when it would take humans weeks or months. So before we continue, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? 
InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com slash simple. And we're back. I went through the article that you sent me and I was, I was struck by sort of the example that you use. And I mean, and for me, like I was thinking just on my own, cause you know, like whenever I go to trade shows, it's always, uh, oh, here, let's look at the Enron emails. And, 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 and this is how, this is how the, the, you know, the, this program will sift through them or this program will sift through them or whatnot. And so, you know, I mean, with Enron, it's just like, they use a lot of Star Wars terms, right. For their, for their uh, products. So it's kind of like, you know, then, then, then you end up with a lot of irrelevant documents where they talk about just Star Wars stuff. We're just talking about Star Wars things. It's just, it might not be relevant to the actual, um, you know, product or the actual you know offering or whatnot. So to me, that was kind of like, oh, well, you can cut out, if you can cut out all that time, then that, that would actually, that, that, that would make things a lot more worthwhile. So, I mean, so for, for a much larger corpus, though, I mean, is, is GPT at a phase yet where it can kind of go through all those with the kind of accuracy that you would expect from, you know, a top line TAR program or, or, or the best contract attorneys in the, on the market? Well, that's a great question. And I'll go back to what I said about we're at the birth of this industry where every day new LLMs come out or existing ones improve. Uh, they improve their capabilities, their smarts. And so whatever I say to you today may be out of date by the time this podcast is released. It's changing by the minute. That said, my answer is you bet, without a doubt. These LLMs, which have passed the bar at very high rates, passed the, the national medical exams, passed business exams and the like, they are fully capable of matching our reviewers in looking at these documents. And by the way, they don't just say, yeah, relevant, thumbs up, not. They'll tell you the reason for it, and you can read it. Now, we've just started on our research in this area, but we put out another paper where we showed testing against uh, 35 of the TREK topics, topics created by NIST, National Institute of Standards, for annual conferences on AI. And we showed that even at the basic level, and an old, outdated version of GPT could do a decent job uh, reviewing, working against the gold standard that Trek had created. The humans had already tagged them. We wanted to see how we could do. And we found many cases where the humans had made mistakes in both directions. Now, the key is this. Number one, humans are humans. And if you've ever read studies about humans and our biocycles, you would know that we're at our best. We start in the morning. Before our break, when we're hungry, we're at our worst. Then we had a snack, we're better. Then there's lunchtime, there's afternoons, there's sports scores, being sick, etc. Humans are humans and they make a lot of mistakes. Computers don't have that issue. It goes at every document at the same level, the same rate. And uh, yes, you put that together and the techniques we're developing. And I have no doubt that we're gonna make a huge dent on the review industry. And I know others that have been testing with uh, excellent results. That doesn't mean we're ready to do it today. I'm not suggesting that. 
But boy, we're only a few months into this, this new era and look how fast it's going. Yeah, they're gonna do it and save clients millions of dollars. As a, it's a $10 billion industry. And I'll be sorry for reviewers that may be out of work, but that was true with buggy makers and slide rule makers and so many other industries, travel agents, you name it. They'll adjust. And I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, there's always, there's always a threat out there for them anyway, right? I mean, offshoring was going to destroy the industry. You know, TR was going to destroy the industry. You know, GPD was... So, I mean, yeah, like, they'll, they'll be... They'll be and like you said, they'll, they'll, they'll still be... There'll still be a role for humans and for human reviewers in that process, but maybe it might, it might not be the same thing as it was, you know, where you had, like, you know, 50, 50 attorneys in a room and, 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 and whatnot with their computers and their boxes and stuff like that. I mean, and look, I mean, like you, know, like you said, I mean, it'll force... Uh, not force. It'll allow lawyers to, to, to do what they want to do what they went to law school for and, 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 and be able to do some more of like the kind of bespoke work that, that, that they want. But I mean, I do kind of wonder sort of like for the, for the people who were relying on doing e-discovery or doing contract work or that kind of stuff, you know, I mean, with the way, law, with the way a, lot, a lot of law firms are, it, it's tough for those people to then be able to transition into like associate jobs. It's tough for them to be able to find work, you know, you know necessarily as like, as like full-time attorneys uh, once they've kind of been labeled as a contract attorney, what, what, what sort of options do you think they would have? Well, let's start and just say the obvious. I take no pleasure in the thought that any technology is going to displace people. It's always a terrible thing, and yet it happens over and over. There's no stopping the technology. And I'll also say that, frankly, uh, and we had a, a nice review center at Catalyst. I worked with great folks. I like them a lot. But whether you want to build a career around clicking documents up or down day in and day out, I think it's as bad or worse than being a ditch digger when they came along with backhoes, right? They're gonna find ways to put their skills. They didn't get through law school as dummies and without skills. They may have gravitated because the market was there, but they're gonna, they're gonna find their path. And most important, our duty in law, we're professionals, we have a higher duty and that's not to melt clients. It is to help them find justice, achieve justice, help them resolve disputes. And we have a duty, and the highest lawyers know and live that duty, to find more effective ways to do our jobs and in the discovery world to do discovery. So uh, those forces are there. Our first article on this subject was entitled Chat GPT, should e-discovery lawyers be nervous? And we said, yeah, because a small group of people with this technology is going to be able to do the work of thousands, much like one good backhoe driver with the right equipment can do the work of a dozen uh, with shovels. And that's the way of the world. And in, from my perspective, we just want to be part of it and we want to help move it forward. And that's what we're doing at Merlin. We're digging in full speed. I'll be showing what we call B2, our internal system, uh, the one I wrote about in the article, showing it today for an EDRM webinar. And uh, there's no turning back. And we're not looking back. So you talked a little bit about sort of where LLMs are heading and, and the fast pace that they're, that they're expanding the capabilities and whatnot. I mean, obviously, a lot of attention recently has been on people citing cases that, that don't exist or, you know, hallucinations in the system that bring up, you know, information that's not real. 
it doesn't it doesn't seem like that would, that would be much of a, as much of a problem for search because you have documents that are, that that is going through and providing context for. But what are some things that you look for as far as you know making it more accurate, making it more precise? Well, I think you've hit the main point. When you're just going to the brain itself and asking it questions, there's a chance that it'll give you a hallucination or a false answer, and that's a concern. I know that the scientists have worked to reduce that, and GPT-4 is less likely to uh, give you a hallucination than GPT-3.5. I've seen it myself. And as I said, this is the birth of an era, and these are teething problems. These are diaper problems. They're clearing up. But more important for a lawyer and an e-discovery lawyer is this. We, and I think others, are finding that when you're focusing GPT on our documents, and you have to present the documents to it, it doesn't have out or access. And so when you say, look at these documents and make a judgment, or give me an answer to my question, but cite the relevant documents as links, we don't see hallucinations. I can't tell you that they're gone because that would take a lot of research and I don't have that capability, but we see it less and less. And then I'll just add the obvious. Here's a tool to give you answers to very important and difficult questions. In our system, those answers are backed up by documents. And yeah, you need to look at those documents and you need to make sure. Just like in TAR, when you've decided we don't need to review these million documents because we've pushed the relevant to the top, you still need to sample, you need to check. And so we're offering a system that will take days or maybe weeks of work and pull it down to minutes. And yeah, you might, you might then uh, better check those links and make sure they're accurate, but GPT is gonna put you right there. So hallucinations, when you're giving it the documents to analyze, seem to be greatly reduced, if not eliminated, but we're lawyers. We always have to check uh, the work done by our associates or by Lexis or Westlaw or uh, for sure, uh, GPT. Gotcha. And I mean, obviously, I mean, you've been talking a little bit about what you're working on and whatnot, but but just, you know, kind of going forward, obviously, you know, with this technology and whatnot and being integrated into Merlin, what's sort of the next step for you as a company? Uh, like, is it just to test it out more to make sure that to make sure that you fine tune it to integrate it with, with the system? Or is it something else that you're working on? No, we're working night and day to build a platform, a framework around these large language models. And it'll be a framework that might go to Claude, which is uh, by Anthropic, a 100,000 token context window, or to GPT-4 or 3.5, or to uh, a Google system. You can't just send a question to GPT because it doesn't have access to your documents, whether you're talking about internal law firm, work product, or discovery documents. A whole framework has to be built that takes your question, figures out what you're looking for, then goes into our system to find the the top candidates. We're finding 30, but it could be hundreds, to then summarize and analyze them and put them in a form where GPT can work its magic and to go back and forth. 
there's a lot underneath this. This is not, I go to my browser for OpenAI and just type in, make me a poem of the uh, Sedona principles. This is a world where you have to move things around. You have to address architectural limitations of GPT. And uh, there's a lot of work to be done. We're showing off what we're doing in the lab, which is a working system uh, using 300,000 uh, Jeb Bush emails, but it's just the start. And uh, through this fall, we'll be building it out and testing it to make sure that it does its job and does it reliably. Gotcha. Uh, and finally, if, if our listeners out there want to get in touch with you to talk to you about stuff or ask you questions, what's the best way to do that? Well, JT at Merlin.tech is my email address. It's pretty simple. Just my initials at Merlin.tech. Uh, try that or come to merlin.tech on our website. You can find me there and you can see what we're doing with GPT. We've built a whole page with our webinars, of which we've done several, articles, other research, and uh, hopefully this podcast will be linked up there as well. So <laughs> come up to merlin.tech or drop me a line at jt at merlin.tech. Great. So thanks for joining us, John. I, I appreciate you joining us, and I enjoyed the conversation. I did too, Victor. Thank you, and it's always good to see you again. You too. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more, please go to your favorite app and check out some other titles from Legal Talk Network. In the meantime, I'm Victor Lee, and I'll see you next time on the ABA Journal Legal Rebels podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalRebels.com, LegalTalkNetwork.com, subscribe via iTunes and RSS, Find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or download the free apps from ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.